0: Okay, so welcome to episode six of the White Shark Interest Group podcast. We have got an absolute treat for you today. I've been itching, itching, itching to get... This guest on our show for joining me today, I'm Ricardo Lacombe, one of the admins of the White Shark Interest Group. We are currently sat at just short of 47,000 members, which makes us the largest White Shark specific group on Facebook. And if you are listening to this podcast and you are not currently a member of that group, please head over to Facebook, search the White Shark Interest Group. There'll be a little question about why you want to join the group. Just give us a shout out. Say, I heard the podcast. And I'm not a member. Uh, we've got a few of those coming in now. It's good to hear from you. So joining me today, we have our founder, Mr. The Dirk Schmidt again. Yeah, how are you? And our special guest this episode is... Now, I use the word legend sometimes and he's going to hate me for saying it. Um, <laughs> so it's plain old Rob Lawrence. Hi oh, there, oh, there, boys. Rob Lawrence is a pioneer in the shark world. If you've ever seen an image from South Africa of a white shark breaching from the water, whether it's Air Jaws, Nat Geo, BBC, Shark Week, or any photographs online and in books, if you've ever seen that image of a breaching white shark, and you have Rob Lawrence to thank, because he was one of the pioneers who took out the False Bay and documented and observed breaching behaviour, and with his highly successful company African Shark Eco Charters, he's worked with hundreds of thousands of people to visit and dive and film and photograph great whites, to see natural predation behaviour that False Bay is famous for, and to make white shark advocates of hundreds of thousands of people. Now he has, without a doubt, been to Seal Island in False Bay, one of the hot spots of white shark activity in the world. He's been to that island more than any other human being alive. No doubt about it. Now let that sink in for a second. Because he remains very humble and he's not in your face with self-promotion, he just wants to let the experience and the sharks speak for themselves, And he can share decades of knowledge about our favorite animal, and that is why I was stoked for him to come on the podcast today and talk to us, so welcome. Welcome to the show, Rob, so glad to have you on here.
1: No, it's good to be here. I actually started with the white sharks in, in the early 90s, in 92, it was I think it was 91 or 92 is when I saw my first white shark way back, and that was originally at um, Dar Island in France Bay. I sort of volunteered, they used to have a, a, a white shark exhibition in the waterfront, and I started sort of doing volunteer work there. And then one thing led to the next and we were sort of working on the, on the boats as sort of crew. Originally, before really the tourist sector started, it was just early days of tagging and heading out of Hansby. So if you head out of Ghansbai or Dye Island, Today it's like the, the white shark capital, but in the early days it was literally a one horse fishing town. Mm. And I worked with a it was a I think it was a National Geographic show with Paul Atkins called um, Great White Shark, and that was in 1992. And then that's sort of where it started. Eh? So between between studying on the weekends and we could, it's, we sort of ran into that area. Yeah, and then then along with a colleague, we we sort of in 90 mid 95 we had ideas of going to Seal Island. And in 96, we headed out in a small little inflatable boat yeah, and we
0: we encountered these white sharks around Seal Island that no one had really observed. So what were the stories before that, before you chose Seal Island to go out to? Was then, obviously no one was operating in that area, but what what were the sightings and stories about white shark breaching?
1: As far as the breaching goes, there weren't a hell of a lot. False Bay itself had a long history. If you go back, there's photos in Simonstown and in Gordons Bay on the other side of the bay from the turn of the century of dead white sharks and fishermen seeing them around their boats and there was the odd story of the sharks jumping into people's boats but it was never. Really documented or recorded or or witnessed as a purpose, it was used, usually a bit of a, a sideline. So Fospar had a long history, but prior the, the guys that started, there was a guy in the mid '80s who tried to get a white shark thing going. Never never took off. Sort of it was just sort of left left to dwell. And then Kranzbar became the shark spot for a few years, and then until. I started working there in the, in the, as I say, the when we say working. It was really like sort of a bunch of young guys not really knowing what they were doing, just running around, having a good time. And slowly but surely, we realised it was quite a unique, unique spot. And we bounded around for several years up until yeah, you know, 99, 2000. We we pitched this film to. We did a segment with Nat Geo. They were actually shooting in Queensland, and they came out for one day. It was a show called Great White Deep Trouble. They got some footage of the white sharks breaching and that was the first time it was actually documented before what you might hear and contrary to other areas and that it was well before Discovery Channel it was before Air Jaws, Air Jaws actually followed the year after that because one of the guys on that um, shoot was a guy by the name of Rocky Strong mm. Dr. Rocky Strong he was one of the first white shark guys he had worked with the Custodes also through the 90s and that and he was with that National Geo show there was Peter Benchley was on it, and David Dubelay, and a whole lot of the guys, and they they ended up extending their stay in false Bay for, I think it was about a week. They shot some of the first breaching and predation stuff properly, and in the following year, 2000, we did the did the show Air Jaws of, I think it was called Air Jaws of Sharks of South Africa with, with Rocky. And that sort of
0: put us put us on the map, so to speak. Was that the first Air Jaws one where Rocky climbs on on the whale carcass while the sharks are feeding <laughs> that around? Was, that was the one. So sort of Crazy.
1: That was, yeah, but there, there was a bit of the Wild West in those days. <laughs> yeah, we've sort of gone from one extreme to another, from no, no regulations to being regulated to the hilt. Huh? So I suppose it is good and bad. But sort of, yeah, that was the general timeline. And then that took off and then... With the advent of Discovery Week and Shark Week, some of the forms took a, a turn for the interesting part, shall we say. Mm. And, um, yeah, so that's sort of the, the timeline of getting put on the map. And then we worked from then 2000, 2010, that decade, where the sharks were like, like clockwork. From 2004 onwards, those six or seven years, you could – it was not – possible to go to seal island and not see a white shark
2: wow i mean what made you guys go out initially to seal island in your in your little rubber duck was it just a, what you heard or was it just curiosity or was it just a you know like a fisherman's tail or something like that or did, did you really know they were going to be white sharks there? no
1: we, we suspected as much Eh, we were we went to go look for them um obviously because we had with slowly, because in the past, a lot of the guys traditionally always used to go in the summer months when the seal pups were there, they would go and they would pump gallons and gallons and gallons of ox blood and chum and the whole tutti frutti and get get nothing. And then, with having worked at Dye Island, where they sort of worked out the winter and summertime patterns, where there seemed to be a movement of sharks inshore during the summer months and to the islands in the winter months. We headed out there and in our winter months, in the winter season. Yeah, we just encountered a whole lot of sharks. We saw some hunting activity. We towed a small decor behind because that original show, that um, great white shark show with the Atkins in 92, they had done something similar in, um, at the Farallon Islands, mm-hmm. Scott Anderson. And that was the first sort of still images of, Of white sharks leaving the water is that where they put the camera on the on the board on the big surfboard yeah that was that was in 92 or 91 up roughly that time period and then but it was sort of that was they would just put it out there and drift and they had that shark. i think they called stumpy was the one that would come along and do the odd breach every now and then but literally they would sit for hours at a time yeah they came out and yeah it managed to and within the space of a few few minutes we had several sharks around this little three and a half meter or 10 foot inflatable boat so we realised we would coin a phrase: we need a bigger boat. a boat. Get
2: a big boat
1: yeah. <laughs> I was not think it was everything. We never really thought about making a business out of it all. It was just something we were doing, yeah. And one thing led to the next, and yeah, sort of the rest is history, as they say, to a certain point, yeah.
2: The whole industry is really taken off, and and uh, you know, I think yeah, you were instrumental in in really bringing you know, so much attention to False Bay and making it one of the you know world hotspots in terms of seeing great white sharks with like great regularity. Um, but then obviously you know you guys were very aware of obviously the seasonality of the sharks being there and you know them only coming at a certain time of year and so forth and uh, maybe just explain to to you know to our listeners in terms of uh, you know the normal migration areas that you find that you know how the sharks arrived at the island at what times and where they hung around and so forth I mean your experience around the island is second to none Mm. I just love hearing all your stories in terms of how you found out all the sectors that were you know the approach sectors to the island that were most popular with great whites and where they where they hung out and the reefs just before Seal Island and so forth?
1: So, so in, in, in False Bay and Cape Town, there's sort of two prevailing wind directions. We have a southeasterly wind, which sort of runs from, if you look at a map of, of Seal Island, it comes from sort of the deep sea area inshore. That's our southeasterly wind, and that's predominantly our summertime wind. And the wintertime, the winds are northwesterly, northerly wind, which runs from sort of table mountainside out to sea. And that determines where you can anchor and work around the island. But traditionally, when we first, went, we, it was just a case of trial and error, really, basically. Because in the old, when we first started in the, in the early 90s, we had about six months where you would, like clockwork, from about April, May, June, July, August, September, have massive volumes of white sharks. But outside of that, you would go to the island and, and hardly see them. These are great whites we're talking. And then the more we worked and the more time we put in, we realized that sort of from end of January, early February, you would have the odd white shark. You would go see a couple, miss a couple of days. So the more time we put in, the more the more we worked on the schedule. We came up with a synopsis that basically the area was a winter feeding ground where you would get congregations and aggregations of, of white sharks through the winter months, main reason being it's a known food source. The seal pups would get to a particular age, then they would be weaned from their parents, and then they would head out to sea. And the first few times they would head out, they would be vulnerable. They wouldn't stick in their, their structured groups for protection, so they would, literally became cannon fodder. So usually the last... Last two weeks of July, first two weeks of August would be the very, very, very best time when you would see in excess of 40 predation events, have 14, 15, 16 white sharks, 10 white sharks around your boat would be a slow day. Uh, And then in the summer months, they would start seeing them along our coastline, moving up and down from sort of first week into October. And then the more they see them inside along the coast, like Musenburg, Gordons Bay, of Simon's town, Point area, then they would be declined at the island. So you would always get the odd one at the island, but for the regularity and being able to offer a service in it to your people, we eventually had about eight months of the year, we would be Pretty successful. That has obviously changed quite drastically in the last four or five years, but particularly the last couple of years with vastly reduced numbers of white sharks. But multitude of factors there. But that's we'll probably get into that. Yeah, I think we'll 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 have a chat about that for sure. We'll pick that up. Yeah. Just before lockdown, now we had a couple of sightings in sh- slightly inshore, so we're very very keen to get out to see to see what's happening. So the the limited thing is that you're used to traditionally have a sort of a winter and a and a summertime pattern with. Around Seal Island, the sharks would be there in good, solid numbers in the winter months, and you would have a little bit of in-between period where the numbers would be less. And then in summertime, the peak of our summer, obviously different to the Northern Hemisphere, sort of October, November, December, January, would be very quiet around Seal Island with the odd visitor. So we used to work actively from sort of end of end of January, middle of middle of Feb up until sort of first week of, of October.
0: Just obviously we'll, we'll get into and we'll have a chat about sort of current, how things are currently, you know, in a bit. You know, it's important and it is interesting to talk about. Uh, can I ask them, on those early days, when you're out at the island, one of the things obviously for listeners who, who don't know, but many do, obviously the topography of Seal Island and False Bay is really what leads itself to the breaching behaviour, because you, you will get breaches elsewhere, but obviously not on the that volume and that and that scale and you know and that kind of that that massive you know predation activities. Did you understand like the topography of the island and the behavior of the sharks in those days?
1: Yeah, it's all learned behavior. It's like anything. So there's a particular route and pattern that like Dirk was talking about. Like we broke. When they call Seal Island Island, it's actually a big rocky outcrop. So it's it's not your big picturesque island. You can't really land on the island. There's no there's no structures on the island, a few few old remnants of of old lighthouse, a light pillar. So the island is pretty much covered in, in Cape First Seals, probably anywhere between fifty and sixty thousand seals, some say higher, but you can roughly put it about sixty odd thousand seals when it's full up, plus Several hundred thousand Cape cormorants and other bird species. Hmm. The movement of the seals traditionally would be they would go out and feed for several days at a time, but there would be a, a movement pattern in the morning and afternoon where they would have to cross the sort of area we dubbed uh, like the, the Ring of Death or uh, the Ring of Peril, depending how well you were going that day with your English. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, like an area where obviously the, the sharks were congregating around the deep drop off. So the seals. Would generally start submerged as long as they can, coming and going from the island. They got their own strategy. They would be in groups, and we found individual seals were far more likely to be targeted than groups. They would hit groups. But it was just basically observations over over a lengthy period of time that we sort of worked out that certain areas in the island that we gave, like we broke the area up into six sectors, um, and certain areas around the island were far more likely to have active Hunting and breaching activities, and that was generally on the southern end of the island, where the seals were moving out towards the deep water. But they, and they would forage and scavenge around the island all the time. But as I said, at one stage there were the sheer volume of sharks there at the right time of the year, made it almost anywhere you would you would get predation and hunting activity at the right time if the conditions were correct.
0: And do you remember your first breach you saw around the island? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, very clearly. Yeah. <laughs> I've, that was that first day in that in that inflatable boat, and then there's obviously yeah you don't really forget it. It's quite such a an ingrained image having this massive thing. I'm flying out the water. Unexpectedly, semi-hoping to see it, John. It's quite a quite a unique thing, and hopefully, we'll be seeing seeing it soon again.
0: Yeah, Dirk, do you remember seeing your first breach out there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I mean,
2: I obviously took a picture of the first one, but uh, but yeah, it was just just amazing, and you kind of get hooked on it. You know, after that, it becomes like a bit of an adrenaline rush, you know, to see them and you, when you deck because it's it's an, it's an unknown. You don't know exactly when it's going to happen. You're expecting it, and I mean, you know, I've been sat on rod boats for many hours, and we were trolling around. And there was nothing, and then all of a sudden you have like two three hits on the decor again you know or a natural predation around and it's it's always super exciting you know there's there's never really a dull moment you know when especially with you know if you're dragging the decor around and you're trying to lure the sharks to to inspect it it's yeah it's amazing it's a it's an experience that i can really recommend to everybody and uh, if you ever wanted to know anything about white sharks is just get out there to to these islands and actually learn about them it's a really great experience
0: One of, the, one of the things I do want to sort of say, because I know, Rob, you're very modest sometimes, but your knowledge is world-class. And I know of all the operators that are around that area, one thing that you will find if you're a listener and you want to head out to South Africa is Rob's business, African Shark Eco Charters. Rob, you go out on pretty much every trip you can get out on don't you yep you are on the boat and you are passing your knowledge to guests you know it's absolutely priceless you cannot put a value on that um is it something that you're still keen to after all these years still go out on all those trips
1: yo look we've we've got operation running that we've got guys that do relieve us that but i still generally at sea the bulk of the time eh? as much as we can do and especially the last it hasn't really changed that much. Eh? As I say, we've we've still kept the operation relatively small and in-house. Our boat has changed since Dirk was laid out. We've got uh, picked up a new boat a couple of years back. Right. But, uh, yeah, the operation is still is it's still very, very similar because eh? it's, it's sort of been a, it's a, a bit of a case that the wheel's not broke so I don't fix it sort of thing. Eh? So um, what's been working well has is, is worked well over the years. Uh, yeah, as I say, it, it has changed a little bit in the last few seasons, but I get to see as much as I can and I'm out there a the hell of a lot. Eh? So this... This lockdown's probably been the longest period I've been on land in my entire life without getting out to sea, so it's, it's driving me a bit crazy.
0: <laughs> I bet. Your <laughs> legs will be shaky when you get back on the boat.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to tomorrow. We're going to give it a will tomorrow and see what we can find after, what, 70 odd days of not being there. Yeah. Oh, amazing.
0: Can I, So when you're going out on all those trips, Rob, is, is that because it is inherently part of the business now that you do that, or is it because you still just love being out at sea?
1: Oh, no, no. I love being out at sea, yeah. So... There's never been a day I got up and go, oh, no, Jesus! I don't want to go to work today. So I think the day that happens, then probably then it's time to, time to change, your, change your setup. Now, I just have, yeah, it's just something that I enjoy doing. Eh? It's, um, and as you say, every day is different. You meet different people every day. You, you see something different. It has its challenges. It's not always a discovery day on TV where everything's working perfectly.
0: And- but even on, a, even on a slow day out on the boat with you. Even when there were maybe no sharks around, the the knowledge that you're just giving everybody and the experience of being out at Seal Island, you know, was just something, something phenomenal. One particular thing I remember that that stood out for me with regards to breaching, we were just talking about, I remember being on the boat and I remember we towed the decoy for about 30 minutes, 30, 35 minutes, and we're getting nothing there's just no activity at all. And everybody's got their cameras pointing at that decoy. Everybody's, you know, trying to keep the camera steady and find a place for 30 minutes and the legs are tired and so on. And I remember we we kind of came around the back of the island and pulled the decoy in and everybody's got their cameras off because it's just not happening. But you said, let's give it, we'll go, we'll go once more, whether it was a hunch or not, we'll we'll have another go. And I remember it was, uh, it was Alison Skidmore who was on and she dropped the, she wound the decoy in. Everyone's not even got their cameras set up yet. And she just threw it back in the water ready to start towing and within a second when nobody's got their cameras on it Mm -hmm. whoosh literally like you know 15 meters from the boat just happened out of the corner of your eye this huge breach but i remember we didn't get any breaches after that but you took the time and you guys on the boat and just passed on so much knowledge about breaching behavior and the again the island and so on i cannot tell you how how much that spreads from when people have been out on a boat that they take that back with them even on a slow day when your expectations might have been i want to see a breaching shark even if you don't see them I think there's still something to be said from being out at sea with a, with a guy like you yep. oh thank you uh, Dirk uh, I know you've talked before when we when we made the film which I'm not going to do my shameless plug for which I normally do <laughs> Okay. actually I will great white shark legend available on Amazon and Vimeo you've talked in there Dirk about Rob's knowledge and passing that knowledge on have you got any experiences from when you guys have been out uh, working together on the
2: boat the, the one that uh, I think you brought up to just now with regard to you know when they're you know, reeling the decoy in as well I mean you just never know I mean there might be a shark out of the boat there might be a shark you know, just in the vicinity to a point. I mean, a lot of people always, you know, put their cameras away. And Rob always said, like, you know, just, you never know, just keep, you know, keep it out there. And uh, I got a few lucky shots like that too, where, you know, we were really in the decoy and, you know, lo and behold, the, the shark, like literally meters from the boat, breaches up, or you can see him rising up and you get a couple of good shots. But it's, yeah, it's, I think also the, the experience that Rob brings along has always been fascinating to listen to. And, you know, I remember the many hours we were sitting and people were cage diving and uh, sitting in the, on, you know, in the rolling seas off Seal Island and uh, you can smell. All the, uh, the, the, the the you can very clearly smell the seals.
0: The stink, as uh, as Rob's boy Adam called it, stink. What stink? seals what about them the poo <laughs> yeah
2: exactly well that's that kind of you know, but but you kind of get used to that you know it's kind of the, the the it's just what it is and just you know can hear them you know the cacophony of sound from them and it's just an amazing adventure the whole thing is just and uh, I've always enjoyed going out with Rob but it's always been something new that I learned and um, you know he's probably tired of answering my you know gazillion questions that I'm kind of like you know, I was, always ask him but it's been a great source of knowledge uh, that, he's, that he's shared with us and I'm sure with you know everybody's on his boat going forward as well I just wanted to really answer Oscar, you know, Rob as well, I mean, we've all heard about, and I'm sure it's a pressing question that a lot of people want to know about is like, you know, what is the self-situation with White Sharks now in False Bay? Because I think that's something that is really pressing and really concerning, obviously, because, you know, it's, it's I still consider False Bay one of the mecha, white shark makers of the world. But, uh, you know, we've obviously seen some declines in numbers and for a you know, multitude of reasons. And, you know, everybody has an answer for that. But uh, I would like to see Rob's, you know, insights into that and and also what other sharks, you know, he's seen like the copper sharks and uh, the cow sharks that have come up. So I'd just like to maybe hear of of Rob's experience on the other sharks that we've seen, uh, not just great whites, that have come up besides the great whites. And then obviously the whole orca story.
1: Yeah, so there's been quite a, especially in the last sort of three years, a a drastic change in the behavior. Sort of um, 2012 was the first year we, we had a big gap, in, in seeing white sharks. And that was the year we had we had Osearch was out and they were hooking sharks at the island and yep. sort of it coincided with the day following them, hooking a big several sharks that they disappeared for 40-odd days and everybody just, okay, put it down to that. And then it seemed to, to get back to normal the following year and when they did return later in 2012, everything seemed to be fairly normal. And then 2018 was the first time They just didn't seem to arrive, didn't arrive, didn't arrive, didn't arrive. Uh, And then we had them for sort of three months during the peak of our season, but the numbers were drastically reduced. And then last season, we didn't, for the first time since I've been at that island in 1996, so more than 20 years, we went our entire season without seeing a single great white shot at the island, uh, which was sort of unheard of. But that also coincided with multitudes, same in Spite of having long long runs of several months of not seeing white sharks in between that then the as dirk was saying we had other shark species come up bronze whaler sharks but mainly at seal island we had large large volumes of 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 car sharks coming up around the boat um so we continue to find the white sharks but but last season was very 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 bad and then this year there's been there's been two days where we've had white sharks at the island leading up at this was in our traditional quieter season, so there had been better sightings on the inside from shark spotting programs. Some of the fishermen and we encountered some on some inshore areas moving around. Some of the other boats, one of the other shark boats, had seen on the inside. And then there was a day where we had we had a shark at the island, so we'll have to see. But as far as the reason, everybody, the first thing people say it's the orcas port and starboard. We've got these two infamous orcas that have been doing the rounds, killing a lot of. Um, The cow sharks, they were accused uh, of killing a whole lot of white sharks in were. We've encountered them at the island on several occasions, not while the white sharks have been there. Um, They definitely decimated the cow sharks around the island, and the cow sharks would disappear. But um, there's a multitude. The one that guys are stipulating now that they're feeding on is that the the smaller smooth island sharks and the far-eye sharks have form a big part of their diet, which they do. So they're speculating that could be the reason. It could also be that False Bay is heavily polluted now, hmm. because we're sitting at the back end of um, of a big city which has grown exponentially in the last 20 years. I think Cape Town's population, even since Dirk's left Cape Town the last seven or eight years, has probably almost doubled again, wow. especially in the informal settlement areas. And a lot of those areas feed the main the main river areas that run into False Bay. I think it's an absolute multitude and I think one of the big things is that we also maybe overestimated the number of white sharks we thought we had in the get-go. So there was never a set number and, and people were trying to judge their numbers from hotspots like Hards Bay or False Bay or Mossel Bay. And The problem is these sharks move and move in great distances and I think Everybody, uh, myself included, we probably overestimated the number of sharks that were up and down our entire coastline. I think I think it's everything. I don't think there's one particular reason why the numbers have declined. There seems to be a push up our east coast because throughout the time in Kharnspy and False Bay were down, Mossel Bay seemed to have an upturn in the numbers of sharks. And not only in the numbers of sharks, in the size of the sharks. Which traditionally, they used to see smaller sharks, and Mossel Bay is another seal colony probably four or 500 kilometres up our east coast. And in Plettenberg Bay, there's an area where they seem to be seeing them inshore. So I don't think it's total gloom and doom yet. I think it's definitely something to be very, very concerned about. But as far as as False Bay goes, I'm reluctant to say specifically what reason. I think it's a multitude. I think everybody's theory has got got merit and weight. And I think them killing their, their summertime food source, the farli and the smooth island sharks, have definitely definitely play a huge part in it, but I think so does the the water clarity, the pollution in the water. It's it's just really hard to put it down, but it's, it is very concerning. So we were hoping now before the lockdown and COVID nineteen scenario that with the early season sightings, which was looking way more promising last year, we had nothing, no sightings, zero, not a single thing. And this year, in our quieter quieter time leading up to our white shark season, we had had several sightings not lots but we had sharks at the island we had a few sightings in Seoul we had three sharks seen on the one day so there were and these were confirmed sightings close to the island in around. so it was looking it might have turned up a little bit so it's yeah we're just gonna have to wait and see but it it is very concerning I think the white sharks are in in serious trouble at the moment.
0: Well I think the thing with the the orcas, I think it's a good headline. I think everyone I mean when that first started happening and you know these these white sharks keep getting washed up with the livers livers out and and there's no no question, you know, from from my opinion and obviously I want to get your your input and Dirk's on this that, that the behavior of the white sharks, particularly there, if there is danger around, like when you know, O search boat rocked up, they, they will flee and they will go and they will either go deep or they'll go somewhere else but to stay away for that length of time i never really put that down to that could purely just be two orcas i just didn't see that that, that could be it on its own and i still don't think it has but the water quality issue i've heard that crop up before rob and is anybody actually doing any any work and study on that that you know of they
1: they actually yeah the august university of cape town they do, they're tracking more plastic pollution and that so they i was actually reading a piece this week that during the lockdown they were they actually now that the beaches were closed They could do fairly accurate counts of plastic particles and that. And they were finding plastic things washing up the beach dating back to the early 90s. So they've got stuff bobbing around and washing up in, in False Bay that's been bobbing around there for 20 years. The water clarity, they do take uh, samples. We've got some of our Blue Flag beaches that have been downgraded because of high E. coli counts in the water and that. So there is work done through the city of Cape Town, and there's, they still pump the raw effluent water into, in and around Cape Town. Not so much in False Bay, but they've got overflow areas. But on the other side, Behalt Bay and Camps Bay side, they, they pump raw sewage out. They say it's treated and that. They also opened a desalination plant on the inside when we had our water crisis a few years back. So... There's a multitude of pressures on the bay. As I say, it's a very beautiful, unique area. But I don't think anybody really knows. For us, it seems like an overnight thing that they've disappeared, but it could have been... This has been building up and building up. And it's just like sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back. One one extra environmental element, be it the pollution, be it the lack of food source, be it the orcas. And I think sort of a combination of everything has just made it, made it bad. And for some other reason, they seem to have stayed away. We might not have lost all the sharks. They might just have found an area further up our coast, which is far more enticing. And whatever they could get in false bay, they could get there. So we'll see. But the orcas, they will definitely have an impact. But to me, it'll be a short-term impact. They will come in, kill a white shark, And no white sharks were confirmed killed by orcas in false Bay, to the best of my knowledge. And we've seen it with my own eyes. I've left Simon's style with groups of people in the morning, ran into orcas, not Port and Starboard, other orcas, been to the island, seen white sharks, left, done an afternoon trip, seen them again. So Port and Starboard, they seem to have definitely targeted sharks. And if they make a kill... No two ways about it. those sharks will leave, but they won't leave for, for a year and a half and they won't chase the entire population of white sharks away. They might chase the few that were in the area, the five or 10 or 15 sharks that are there and they might move away for five, six, seven, 10 days, two weeks, three weeks a month even. But not the mass decline and drop off that we've, we've seen. So as I said, there's a multitude of factors. I just think there just weren't as many white sharks we thought they were in the get-go and with them possibly being caught through sharks, board, drum lines, longliners offshore and their food source being diminished and the pollution being infected and the odd orca coming through. I think all of that just plays a part.
0: And the behavior thing with sharks I always found fascinating with with the fact that they will disperse and disappear, even if you say it's just for a short period of time. That kind of rings home to me that it just shows how little we know about them, that how how does that message go out? You know, is one shark kind of, you know, screaming to the other ones that danger, you know, there's danger in the area, go. I mean, how does that even work? Have you any thoughts how that that behavior functions.
1: Uh, look, you go. You speak to the old fishermen there, eh? and um, a lot of them said if you they were fishing and you wanted to chase the sharks away while they were catching you catching catching your fish, they said you would always catch catch one shark, kill it, to drop it overboard, and the sharks would disappear. It could be it could be scent they gave off in the water. It could be the smell of the rotting carcass you can never say 100 when it comes to wildlife but there's definitely a, a fight or flight scenario in every in every creature when they get to the stage where they realize obviously orcas are there he's bigger he's stronger he's clever there's five or ten or fifteen of them they're pack hunting me and they would leave so it's it's, it's not unique it's been witnessed in california of the farallon islands they were some of the first guys to document the case when the orcas would arrive that the white sharks would leave um, i think it was a guy called scott anderson did a lot of work there with peter powell back in the back in the days and they would they were the first guys to sort of Of note the case that when the white sharks arrived, I mean, the orcas arrived, the white sharks would disappear sometimes for two months at a time, Mm. but they would always come back. So there's always that hope. And, um, as I was saying, this year is sort of, it's hard to say because we're sort of in June now and this should be traditionally our prime season. So it's going to be very interesting to see what, what happens in the next few days when we get out to see if there's been a change or if it's going to be the same as last year. Or we get there and there's a few white sharks bobbing around. We just we just don't know. And hopefully hopefully it's it's the latter. And we get there and there's some white sharks.
2: Just coming back in terms of, of, of sharks, Behavior per se that we've noticed, I think, when, when Osage was done as well, we saw the sharks leaving the area. You know, once Osage has been around, and it seems to me that they were able to sense or, you know, the distress or something like that. It was a very interesting behavior that we noted. And maybe through also the you know, these white sharks being hunted, that maybe, a white, you know, as they're in, interspecies, they kind of like give out a signal or kind of a response that you know, is picked up by other sharks that um, that they then, you know, leave and vacate the area. So it's just something that, um, again, we don't really Notes or speculation hypotheses, but uh, through observation, but it's just an event, you know, it's a very interesting topic and. uh you know, seeing the sharks' behavior change and, and move around and so forth. But having said that, I just wanted to ask Rob as well. This is one one thing I always find so interesting is that, um, you know, we were sitting at the island and uh, waiting for sharks to arrive for the cage. Uh, you were, like, stomping on the boat and using your, your boat, you know, your, your boat hook or something like that to stomp on the boat and create, like, a chopping noise. And that seemed to also bring the bring the sharks around.
1: We'd just make noise, eh, because they would hear us. Yeah. Or they would sense a, a shift in the – in in the in the vibrations so we've noticed over the over the years of sitting particularly in very calm days when it's super rough and everything's banging around it's less effective but in days when you when you're sitting waiting and the water's dead calm and it's a more pondish and you would see the shark swimming in the distance not necessarily in your your chum line or, or burly slick and you you bang and make a noise they would change course and head pretty much head straight for you and not every single time but it we'd seen it enough that it's there's no harm in doing it, Chap. Uh, yeah. Especially when you've got to steal the shark from from a boat in the close by facilities, it, it it works pretty well.
0: This is also the thing that some people on our group often quote and when, when the whole chumming debate comes in and we try and educate as to exactly what chumming means because people do think it is tipping all those buckets of buckets of blood in the water and livers and so on. And we try and educate about how chum and bait actually works but some people always throw the argument in well you don't even need chum and bait because in australia they just play acdc on loudspeakers and that brings the sharks to the boat I'm, I'm sure it's not that simple uh but that rhythmic banging i think is something that's that's always been sort of documented historically isn't it that will attract sharks like in a in a shipwreck incident or a you know a boat going down they'll be attracted to those kind of noises
1: yeah I know no the, the, the sound thing is is i think fairly well documented that it's got some form of, of of attraction, especially you white shark being a top predator and they, they've got this sound that's not meant to be there. So they're curious by nature. So they will go and investigate. Yeah, so that's sort of the simplistic theory behind it is if you make a noise, you try to stand out from the crowd, you will come and have a look at you. Probably the opposite if you had a shipwreck, but yeah, it, it, it's definitely worked from anecdotal evidence we've seen over the years.
0: Can I ask you on a different topic? Um, Obviously, I've been out there, you know, making a a very small budget film with yourself. But obviously, you've worked with, you know, BBC, Nat Geo, Discovery. You've been behind the scenes on a lot of those productions how do you think that's changed with not so much the shark week content over the years because i think there's a general consensus it's not kind of what it used to be but how's that changed in terms of you taking out crews to actually go and film because the expectation like you're talking about expectations of guests earlier what about with film crews because to go out there and get an amazing sort of slow-mo phantom cam breach. That you could be out there for for days, weeks to try and get that kind of thing. How do the how are the crews these days for wanting to go out there and do productions? There's very few film
1: crews, especially over the last season or two. Also so what? It's a probably a product of our own success because, as you say, with the phantom high-speed cameras and that, and we were so successful for those seven, eight years leading up to probably 2018. There's, I wouldn't say the market's saturated with it, but there's substantial footage out there. So the crews have, have declined. So the crews you get nowadays... It's almost it's changed a lot from the early days with the with the National Geographic guys and the Discovery Channel guys where they did a lot more natural history shows and they sort of showed it as is. Nowadays, what's happened, particularly with your your Shark Week stuff, it's they almost pre write a script and they they'll shoot a sequence a once off for some elaborate cage or platform or something to make it super daring and they'll sell it that it's the world first and it's groundbreaking work and they'll do one segment and one uh, and one screenshot and it looks all spectacular because of the high speed camera work, but People don't do that on a regular basis. It never gets done again or after because they need to sort of outdo the next year to try and sell it. It it's almost becomes, a, I wouldn't say a Hollywood production, but there's, they have a script before and say, we're going to do this much and that, and we're going to have a sequence and we're going to pull up the middle shot doing this and cut along. So it's changed. I've always per- preferred to do sort of the, the natural history stuff where they focus on the animal and the environment, what they're forming. And I'm not a huge fan personally of of the presenter being the star as soon as that's the case, then you have to sort of manipulate angles and shots to to get someone in the
0: cut. Co- it's got its place, but it's personally, it's it's something that i maybe to my own detriment down the line. I've, I've never really enjoyed doing. The drama and the sensationalism is the thing that gets me. Because when you talk about that one sequence, you know, and someone will go out and shoot some epic looking camera shot. But then you've got to string like a whole 45, 50 minute show and around that and then you just tend to get that repeated and repeated and repeated or change the music or like you say stick someone else in front of the camera to talk about it or do the do the fake you know reaction shot after that clearly wasn't done at the time the um, that happened but you've had hollywood crews out there as well haven't you you've you've had we've had everything I remember that film I don't want to mention it cuz uh,
1: yeah, yeah um, <laughs> that one yes <laughs> uh, yes no we've had look we've done everything from See, look, what, what changed a lot with the breaching activity was the camera technology, was the was the phantom high-speed cameras where they had sort of like, it had like a memory loop. So shark would breach, and two seconds later, they would fire the fire the button and it would shoot at 1,500 frames, 2,000 frames a second or whatever the case might be, and it would sort of me- memorize two seconds back where some of the early shows, like the very first time when we had breaching stuff, they were shooting with Super 16 form, so high-speed form, and they sort of had to either press it as the shark jumped so they would miss the initial jump or take a chance and just start burning film. Hmm. i worked with a big french uh, french company who did that where we had a 35 millimeter film projector on the back of the boat in a gyro mount and we just burned film all day long very expensive dirk was saying earlier waiting for it to happen as the reel runs out the shark would jump or before it was ready they got some sequences but the camera technology changed and it's just revolutionized the stuff the high speed stuff and the form look it's amazing it's like the stuff some of the shark grid footage is is unbelievably nice and it's a lot of it's been shot of with myself on that but then they have the, the footage and then they've got to create a star and it's they work around an angle and they have a particular sequence and they have to make it dangerous because he's going to get eaten and it's as i said something that i yeah clearly to my own business detriment it's 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 but it's it's just something I don't like
0: doing. Well, it might be to your business detriment, but I think it's, to be fair, Rob, it's uh, hats off to you because not everybody does buy into that. And, and if you can try and inject... I mean, we we have this discussion every year, don't we, Dirk? Every, every Shark Week, every year on the group, there'll be discussion around, this is not how it used to be. I wish we could see some more of the natural history. But then the other argument, the counter-argument is, is it gets the average Joe interested and hooked on sharks. And so it gets a... De- some discussion going of any kind
2: yeah but uh, I always believe there should be a balance I mean you know there were years that Shark Week was just stupid I mean there was nothing you could actually watch it Was everything was sensationalized you know everything was as 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 Rob says your Shark Swam past the boat and you you know you heard the danger music come out and stuff like that I mean just uncalled for it just kind of you know created the wrong perception that we were fighting for that you know these sharks are not as as portrayed by the media and i really hold yeah, you know, rob in high regard for keeping the kind of the sanity <laughs> a lot of the shows do that together as well because um yeah these guys sometimes just run away with the show and it kind of becomes something that the shark isn't you know and all you see is teeth and and you know uh, writhing and splashing and you know <laughs> And everything's like high danger and sure i mean you know we obviously out there you got to be cautious in working with them but um you know again they are being brought to the boat you're trying to you know, provoke a reaction out of from these sharks and that's obviously you know the, the whole reason for the film but yeah it's, it's a lot of things changed, and i must say it's you know more and more shows have actually come around that are that are much more realistic and actually show the sharks in their real environment versus just blood and guts and uh you know just teeth and just, you know, monsters and stuff, all the deep. Uh, what I still, you know, really cringe about it, and you might have a really good show, but you got an abhorrent title. Yeah. That, you know, killers lurking or whatever. I mean, there's a couple of really, I <laughs> thought like, wow, I mean, what a weird, um, you know, it's, it's, and the show is actually quite good, but the title is just, a, you know, is is just, just turns me off completely
0: i think we talked about that on one of the other episodes with the um, white shark serial killer show or serial killer yeah. white shark but like you say the content was actually about how that kind of forensic approach that you'd normally take to say like a serial killer you can apply to nature and, and sharks and like you say, the content was good but yeah man the titles yeah no no thank you <laughs> no time for that uh, at all yeah
2: left a lot to be appreciated but yeah it's it's uh, but i get that
0: indeed uh, rob i just want to ask you a little bit around personalities of sharks. I know when all your crew start knowing, you know, the names of sharks, whether that's Cuz, De Rossi, Mayam, but, you know, all these names throw out. And I know we briefly talked about it before, but I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts. That I've always considered that something that should be publicized more but could be in danger of kind of making them into cuddly pets. And you get it with Guadalupe right now, that every year, you know, all the operators are saying, oh, you need to come and see, you know, Deep Blue or you need to, you know, they're always throwing the name of the shark out. Do you, do you think that's a... a a healthy approach to advertise like the, the personalities of sharks
1: probably good and bad but but there's definitely is a is a is a personality trait among certain ones or especially the ones that interact with a boat shall we say because there's you know i experienced in in false bay when we when we had the big volumes of sharks you would have a lot of sharks that would it's a double thing it would come back to the chumming scenario as well some sharks no matter what you did had no interest in your boat whatever whatever and it's like literally we had the one shark that we call shy guy that's bobbed around that would see through photos of its dorsal fin or its tail fin on kills, very successful hunting shark and then up to the boat it would literally do what we would call a flyby, come up make one turn, gone. And then we would have other particular sharks that that would interact with the boat that would some would chase the decoy, some would chase the bait, some would just swim around the cage. So that is nice, but that sort of also plays into, into the narrative, like I was saying earlier, that we've probably overestimated the number of sharks. That if we would we would see these same individuals year in and year out, year in and year out, at particular times of the year, doing the same thing, coming back, some, some of the sharks seeing, being seen over a decade, and in Guadalupe with Deep Blue, and I'm sure they've got several others they've got names for, it actually shows that these sharks are definitely far more vulnerable than we realize, because they also depending on interacting with maybe 10 or 15 individual sharks on a regular basis, or 20. And if it's only 20 or 40 or 50, it, it's not a lot of animals. And I think then you come into a scenario like ours where it could be a seasonality change or two years um, <clears throat> where they might run into, I don't know, various problems, be it orcas or pollution or whatever, and they might just disappear. And it could be gloom and doom, or it could just be a case that those particular 20 sharks are not coming in the bay for whatever reason and they're moving 10 ks up the coast or 5 have been killed or 10 have been killed now you're like only dealing with 5 or 6 and that could lead to the reason why our numbers are so down that's just very very interesting to to for the. but there's definitely a personality thing sort of digressed on the personality thing but, oh,
0: it's, it's, I don't know if it's a bad thing or a good thing but it's, they're, they're there to be admired but you also have to respect them I guess how quickly when a shark does rock up at the boat how quickly do you recognise who you know which shark that is? Is it behaviour? Is it a marking? It's
1: usually obviously purely from from visually when you see the shark, but it's that end combination of the, of the behaviour. So it's usually a mark or a sizing or scars or the white blotching on its fin. But instantaneously, you're especially the ones that that are super active around the boat. Those ones you would literally recognise as I say, instantaneously you rock up. And then some would just be too generic from the next, you'll come back three or four turns, and you might see that shark over the next two or three days. But we wouldn't give it a name or even say, unless we've had some sort of interaction. And the name's usually the first thing that someone calls out, be it one of the crew
0: or the guests, as long as it's not too stupid. <laughs> but a lot of the names are... Yeah, once the name comes out, it generally sticks. There, I always believe that it is one of those areas. I think you see it with the eco tourism that now they're starting to use the specific shark names, especially for Guadalupe, that come out and see not just Deep Blue, but all you know, all the sort of known names out there. I do think it is a really good driver for eco tourism because people will book a trip going out, and it'll be. I want to go see Deep Blue. But then I also think there's an expectation issue with that. You know, you booked a trip to go and do that, and you've taken, you know, two days to travel out to Guad, and, and then you don't get to see that shark. So I, I think it is a driver for eco-tourism. I mean, Dirk, have you any have you any sort of thoughts on that? Did you get to know specific sharks while you've been out on photography trips?
2: I was fortunate. I mean, I've seen, I visited... Um, um, Guadalupe uh, last year as well which was absolutely amazing uh you know compared to to false bay it's obviously completely different it's a very long boat trip it's like a literally overnight boat trip and uh you can either be a rough trip or a smooth trip and uh the smooth trip was going there and the rough trip was going back. But but the water clarity is obviously a big factor and the size of the sharks are obviously completely different as well. But yeah, and, and they their sharks have personalities too. I mean, you know which one's going to rush the cage, which one's just going to you know swim by. Uh, some sharks uh, like Lucy just swam by in the deep and she never came up. And you know them. I mean, the guys that operate them know the sharks. They've actually got a whole book that was, I think... Um, I can't remember who actually put it together, but of actually identifying sharks with all the different names and guests were actually encouraged to spot those sharks and, and take pictures and so forth. And then, you know, they kept a record database in terms of the shark's reappearance. But I remember one, I don't know if Rob gave her the name or we gave her the name, but it was Cruella. There was two uh, males that were cruising around the boat and they were quite, you know, relaxed and placid. And then all of a sudden they disappeared. They were gone. And uh, then about uh, three, four minutes later, this, the Cruella appeared. And I still remember being on the duckboard. And, uh, in the water, and she kind of came up between the two between between the two hulls and she was quite an aggressive shark as well. So they definitely have different personalities. And uh, as Rob points out as well, I mean these sharks change from day to day as well. I mean sometimes uh, you know you, you might see a shark that's for two days is just around the boat, is you know playing with the decoy and so forth, and you know the next day he's a completely different shark, and uh, you know trying to bite everything and so forth. And yeah, obviously he hasn't been feeding, so it's great to be able to see the same shark over and over again, and you kind of look out for them, you you hope they make another. The year because we all know how much pressure these sharks have got out in the open sea with the netting and the, and the and the long lining and so forth and uh, the pressure that they face so yeah it's been a it's always been great and that's you know I think you know sure Rob can tell volumes about how many you know sharks he's seen and seen over year and year again and uh, you know we all know the big story of Nicole that swam from Mossel Bay I think it was it was Hansburg Mossel Bay all the way to to Australia and back again so there uh, be some good stories about you know recognizing sharks and and Shark Nicole you know obviously being famous for that too.
0: wanted to ask you if we can get into discussing a bit i mean myself i'm very pro cage diving pro eco tourism when it's done correctly i kind of think i landed very very lucky getting the recommendation for you know for yourself at african shark eco charters from the get-go because you kind of set an extremely high bar in terms of how you operate ethically can i ask you on this topic of chumming and baiting because it's something that we always get into on the white shark interest group can you just clear up exactly what you do in terms of chumming and baiting?
1: Okay, well, <clears throat> yeah, chumming and baiting, look, we, we're very restrictive in what we can and can't use locally. Mm-hmm. Also, there's, a lot of the, the chumming and baiting scenarios disappeared now that we haven't seen a white shark out of last year. So to all the people that thought if you put chum in the water the white sharks are going to definitely come and you're going to condition it and it's going to follow your boat around and attack everybody i wish that was the case and i would have had a white shark at my boat last year so that sort of dispels that thing mm-hmm. so if the white shark is not in the area and not in a certain distance of your boat no matter what you do you're not going to attract it so first of all you have to have sharks in the area at a certain time of the year we are working around a seal colony where at its peak we have probably got 60-odd thousand seals on it. From the nature of anchoring a boat, you can only lie in one direction to wind and or current, which is the same way that your central from the island would go. We've just got a small amount. You generally use a tuna head um, or some sort of fish product. We don't use any mammal products, no blood from cows or oxen or whatever the case might be. It's generally just um, tuna. The tuna is the most viable thing because is a, it's a, the easiest to get hold of and it, it seems to work relatively well. And it's, it's a byproduct of a big fisheries that's already existing in Cape Town. So we use a tuna head, you put that in the water and generally you'll probably stomp on a tuna head or you'll have some mashed up mackerel or some sardines and you'll mix that with a bit of water and that'll form like a little slick, which will make a central, which will help the sharks locate you. And that is pretty much it. And as I say, like we were allu- alluding to earlier, some of the sharks will be highly interactive around the boat. Others will not be. We've had days on multitude occasions where you've had several predation events, successful and successful, and you get nothing to the boat. Another day, you will have the same conditions as the morning and you'll have multitudes of sharks. So it's, I think it's got a lot to do with the individual shark. But as far as altering and changing behavior, that's that's not gonna do it. As I said, if if I could alter and change the shark's behavior, I would never have had a trip where I haven't seen a white shark. And um I would get sharks every time. If the sharks are the area, they will interact with you, and you have You have to keep the interest subway. That's sort of it. There's not it's, it's not a hell of a lot of thing. Every fisherman, every fisherman when they're fishing for, beard for various species of fish on anchor or tuna fishing or whatever, will form a burly line, a chum line. It's a it's trying to attract a predator to your boat, and that's that's
0: exactly what we're doing. There's a natural chum slick anyway, isn't there? Island essentially, like you say, you, you kind of sat in it. Mass, massive chum slick at
1: the island. There, yeah, you know, there's a multitude of things in the island, and it's and you always sit, unfortunately, most of the time downwind of the island, and um, you're in that chum line 99 percent of the time. So, but as I said earlier, if 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 chumming and that could guarantee me and change sharks' behaviour, I would have never missed missed a shark trip in my entire life which is not the case.
0: Yeah, I still think the, the Jaws factor comes in. When I talk to people who haven't been out on a, on a cage diving trip about Chum, the people who don't sort of understand or haven't seen the videos, this still, just the image they have is, you know, Brody at the back of the boat with the bucket full of blood throwing stuff over. You know, that's that's people still have that in their memory from however many years ago Jaws came out, and it still lingers.
1: No, it does. Well, like I said, innate fear of... I don't think you'll ever change it, really. Yeah? You, we can try, but people are going to be fearful of snakes and spiders and scorpions and sharks, no no matter
0: what. I Even mean, if you don't get snakes in the UK, people are scared of them. So it is what it is. Oh, we do get some snakes. My boy's, my boy's looking for one out in the garden now. He's looking for grass snakes. Um, he's doing his yeah. damnedest to try and build something to attract a grass snake to the garden because there's one a few a few houses up. So now you get them. But like you say, yeah, you know, you can be scared of a scared of a white shark for different reasons, yeah. uh, as we know, to say a land-based predator.
2: I just want to add, add to that is that, I mean, uh, many people, you know, ask me, like, um, there's the same the debate about you know, uh, cage diving, and we can obviously have a completely different story, different podcast on that. But I always, always found that people that have, you know, there's always a difference in, in when you leave on an island, there's a whole bunch of new people that have never seen a white shark. They There's a different perception but when they come back. Everybody's talking white shark. It's like it's a magic button that gets pressed when they see this, you know, beautiful animals swim past a cage or breaching and and just being there. We, our personally, believe that sh- uh, cage diving has the has had the most positive effect on changing humans or people's perceptions on white sharks. That's just my opinion, but it's just that I've seen such a multitude of people. Change the change your opinion and change the whole outlook on white sharks. Once I've been on one of these trips, and uh, I don't know if Rob's, you know, you're probably tired of seeing it, but um, this is just it's just such a magic. You know, I always love love seeing that kind of interaction afterwards.
1: No, no, every tripper, you'll always have someone that's either fearful or skeptical, or it's very very seldom you'll have almost never a person will have the same attitude when they leave. Look, it's the only way you can really show people white sharks. Even to this day and age, you don't find them in captivity. You can't keep them there. Yeah, they are the last truly wild animal out there, and it's like, the only way you're going to go see a white shark is going with some sort of dive operation where you actually look for them. You might be lucky and find one in a normal uncaged dive scenario somewhere along our coastline or in in the US or wherever, but to go and look for white sharks, there's only a few handful of spots or known spots in the world, and the only way you can do it is through a, a caging scenario because... That's just the way things are.
0: I I was terrified when I first came out on the boat. Absolutely terrified. I mean, I can't I've told this story I think on one of the podcasts, but when we first came out Rob as uh, obviously me and Rachel as you know, as tourists and I thought that our trip was on a Wednesday. So we're on a Monday and we just sat on the beach in Simonstown thinking, oh, we've got another day, you know, we've got to get prepped up for this big thing of I'm gonna go out and see great white sharks, you know, and the and the fear that was with it. And then your guys give us a call at the guest house saying, uh, actually your trip's on Tuesday. Are you, are you all set for your trip tomorrow? And we're like, Oh man, we, we thought we had a day to kind of prepare for this. <laughs> and I remember going down on the on the jetty that morning and and it's, it's still now it's magical there's so many days when i see the sunrise or so even in the in the uk and i think i wish i was in simon's town on that jetty yeah. at like you know half five in the morning six o'clock you know it's a magical experience but i remember absolutely terrified and and then it took like dirk was saying it took you know seconds out on a boat of seeing an actual white shark but like like dirk said you must you must see this every single trip you must see perceptions change
1: no you do It's it's one of the most yeah it's very rewarding and you know? also it's you you meet, it's also people, it's, it's very interesting because you meet people with totally every, every walk of life from all corners of the world. Everybody's drawn there to this myth, mythical, magical animal. And it's, it's amazing to see, actually, that people are taking the time out of, from everywhere. And it's their perceptions. You get the few sharp, Crazies that are totally into sharks that have done it. Traveled all over, but generally most people that we deal with because of where we base and it's a day trip and it's a it's, it's usually it's usually day trippers unless you're working with your your more seasoned guys over the peak of the year, Ninety percent of our clientele is sort of day day trippers. Yeah. That that come and go. They're, some of them know what they're doing. Some of them have no idea. And everybody leaves with a well, hopefully everybody leaves with a different perspective of arriving. But we think we think we do a fairly decent job of getting them to. To see the animal for what they really
0: are yeah i think you'd be modest again it's not a fairly decent job it's a phenomenal job because I, I mean again i saw people going out on those boats and even like i mean my brother-in-law went out on there uh it was on honeymoon i think he came out with yourself and even on like you said even on a slow day when you might not be getting those sharks, just being out in that place with you guys and sharing that knowledge absolutely 100 actually changes people's lives you know and makes advocates of you know of of Joe Blogs who comes out there because he sees the big shark and the teeth and its interest and gets out on a boat and realizes what this creature is all about and hundred percent makes advocates of people down the line which is I guess Dirk why. Why we have a white shark interest group? Yeah,
2: that's right. And uh, I think also to that to your point, and you know, I'd like to plug your 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 your. I think your really great documentary that you made about the the shark legend is. I think it sums it up very well as well. It's not the and that's the whole whole thing about these these trips as well. It's not that you're going to see this monster. You're not going to go away with like wow this is the monster that everybody describes. And you've done it very, very well in your, in your film. Appreciate that. Uh, Shark Legend, you say that, uh, you know, to really demystify that whole ex- that ex- experience. And, um, you know, just by watching your documentary, you'll get a pretty good idea in terms of what's out there and what you expect. You know, it's a more realistic approach in terms of seeing sharks versus, you know, the sensationalistic media hyped and, you know, sometimes uh, Net Geo Discovery Channel, you know. <laughs> titles that you kind of you know cringe off but uh, but yeah so I can really speak for that and I'd, and I've always been a great proponent for shark cage diving because I think it's it's really important to educate people on great whites and uh, as Rob also alluded today is that uh, you know, it's really difficult to get them to your boat. It's not like they're waiting there for you. It's not like they'll circle your boat immediately that you throw anchor. And it can be days sometimes that you don't see one, and uh, or you know that they're there, but they just don't, don't come to your boat. They elsewhere. They're hunting or they just just staying down deep.
0: I I do remember on one trip out there where somebody had seen me sat with a camera, and again we again we were you know very very low budget. We're not Discovery Channel, but someone said, "Hey, you know, is this going to be on Discovery Channel?" And I turned to the lady and said, "Oh God, I hope not." And and she kind of looked at me like you know. What? What's wrong it's shark week and I'm like yeah that's not we really don't want to do that but again Rob I can't thank you enough for the, the I mean I've I've shown that film in schools we've had it online you know it's available now on Amazon for the amount of people who, who learn something and yeah. yeah okay I put the documentary together with Rachel but you know we're going out there and you, if you don't have something to point your camera at and you don't have that kind of insight from like yourself Rob then you can't really tell that that tale so you know again just on on the back of that thank you so much for that and I know you have a whole crew and a, a team that work with you as well and karen in the background who who keeps things ticking along must must give a nod of the hat too
1: no no thank you eh? so hopefully hopefully we'll we'll get to have many more days like that hopefully these last two years have just been a a blip in nature and we'll uh, have many more better ones to come hopefully
0: well, I hate to say it, but we're we're really kind of just getting out of time um, at the moment, Rob. Um, so all I could say is absolutely want to thank you 100% for your time today. I would love to have you back on the podcast if we can. Sure, anytime. I really enjoyed it. If you are listening to this podcast and you're not a member of the White Shark Interest Group, you can find us on Facebook. Just search us there. We also have our Instagram platform, which is White Shark underscore interest group. You'll find on there not just phenomenal images from, uh, we've had some of Rob's pieces on there as well as Dirk's, You'll also find that uh, we like to put a bit of fact and knowledge behind those images as well. So please head over and follow us on Instagram. You can also find us on YouTube. Some people listen to this podcast there, and we've got some other videos there as well. And that is, again, just search the White Shock Interest Group on YouTube, and we have our website, the WhitesharkInterestGroup.com. So with that said, uh, again, thank you so much, Rob. Dirk, thanks again for being on this podcast today. Pleasure. really. Thank you. And we will see you guys on the next episode.